Welcome to the Real Clear Politics Takeaway for Friday, August 20th. I'm Andrew Walworth. Well, just how bad a week has it been for the United States and the Biden administration in particular? The total collapse of the Afghan government, the botched evacuation of U.S. personnel and our Afghan allies, the searing visuals of chaos on the ground, as well as what looks like confusion and finger pointing within the U.S. government. It is, in short, a mess long-term consequences both here at home, in the region, and in the great power struggle between the U.S., China, and Russia. Congress is set to start hearings as early as next week, and you can bet that partisan politics will be, if not front and center, close to the main stage. And government at all levels across the country are now rolling out vaccine mandates to fight the Delta variant. Is it one more step towards Big Brother, or is it the only way to get the virus under control? Here to talk about all of this with me are Tom Bevan, co-founder and president of Real Clear Politics, Carl Cannon, Washington Bureau Chief, and RCP columnist and associate editor, A.B. Stoddard. So, Tom, uh, welcome back to the podcast. You've been gone for a while. Let me start with you. The Afghan collapse seems to have taken the Biden administration by surprise. But uh, the Wall Street Journal, others are reporting that there were plenty of internal warnings that this could unravel very quickly. So how did they get this so wrong? Well, we're going to find out, I think, eventually, as we get more uh, details on exactly what the briefings were. Uh, we've had uh, Kash Patel, who is the Trump administration point man on Afghanistan and the withdrawal, had a piece in the New York Post, which we ran on the site today, saying that they had left them this detailed plan, which the Biden administration promptly ignored. So I think we'll we'll learn more about what happened. But I think the, the problem for the Biden administration is many fold. And one of those is that Joe Biden promised during the campaign that he would never lie to us about COVID or anything else. He said in his inaugural address that, you know, standing before God and the American people, that he would always level with us. And we have this clip of him on July 8th saying, there's no way this is going to happen. It's There's no, no possibility of it happening. And then he gives this interview with George Stephanopoulos yesterday or day before, I guess it ran yesterday, where he said, look, we always knew there was going to be chaos. It was completely priced into my decision. Well, that's not what he was telling the American people. So he's got a an issue aside from sort of the political mess. He's got a credibility issue at stake now. And so that's going to be something that he's going to have to deal with. And, and quite frankly, every time he's opened his mouth, um, he's made it worse, not better. So, A.B., let's look ahead a little bit to next week. Um, we're going to have these congressional hearings. They may start as early as next week. Bob Menendez in the Senate. Um, he isn't really known for understatement, but he says he's going to look at the flawed execution for the U.S. withdrawal. Says he also wants to look at Trump's negotiation with the Taliban. And Gregory Meeks, uh, who's head of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, he has asked uh, Secretary of State Blinken and Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin to testify. Uh, do you think that will happen? And how do you think it will happen? Well, I don't know how they're going to find a way out of it. And it's going to be very challenging for them because there's a lot of leaking going on from different factions of the administration uh, passing the blame around. Uh, the intelligence community wants us to know it was not an intelligence failure. Military wants us to know um, that they sounded the alarm with state. And everyone basically wants us to know it was the White House, uh, sort of collectively. Um, which, which means Joe Biden. Right. 
Joe Biden has made it perfectly clear for a long time that this was his policy position. It's, it, it, and I, I don't really believe that the poli- that the substantive outcome of withdrawal is is the surprise. It's the it's the total uh, debacle of the management of this process of withdrawal and this community humanitarian crisis that has resulted. I think it'll be very hard um, for those men to be put on the spot about the intelligence that they saw, the warnings that they gave the White House, the warnings they received themselves. Uh, It's not credible that a team that was in the vice presidency for eight years and came in completely ready and seasoned and experienced on this issue, they knew it inside and out. They knew from day one of inauguration they were dealing with this to tell the American public that they both overestimated the strength of the Afghan forces while simultaneously underestimating the strength of the Taliban as it made its most recent territorial gains in terms of of the approach to the August 31 deadline. It's not credible. So there are going to be some really, really tough moments for different parts of the administration who are now privately, you know, at odds with each other. Um, about trying to rewrite this narrative. And what's been so interesting to me is that the only one who doesn't seem to be trying to sort of fix things and make it better uh, is Joe Biden, who refuses to do any cleanup, who came into office as, as Tom says, promising competence and empathy and has exhibited neither. He's placing intense blame on the Afghans and which is really, really unseemly in light of what we're seeing them go through. And I'm fascinated, and then I'll end my filibuster, um, by the polling <laughs> that we're seeing that Americans who favor withdrawal, like Joe Biden, are, are, are now um, changing their minds, that the number has gone down because they see the Taliban in control, but they also see um, the, this incredibly shameful end and what it means for our credibility around the world and at home. So I think they're in a world of hurt and I don't, I don't know how they get out of testifying, but it would be very difficult for them to tell the truth um, and, and, and disagree. Carl, I don't think that was a filibuster. I thought that was an eloquent statement. (laughs) Pretty good. Pretty good. In fact, it was so good. I don't even know what to say, but I'll, I'll take a chance here. Andy, you know, Donald Trump, was elected president with no experience. He'd never been on a city council. He'd never been in a town council. I don't think he'd been on a condo board. He was not ready to govern if your test is experience. Joe Biden is probably the most experienced president we've had. I don't know. There's a few others like it, you know, John Adams. I mean, but but here, this idea, to pick up on what AB's saying, that the that this thing collapsed and they had no idea what was going on, it beggars belief. Here's the other thing. Let's start at the beginning. Joe Biden was inaugurated in January, and he promised during the campaign, during the transition, and during his first hours in office to undo anything he could that Trump had done. His view in the Democratic Party view is that Trump had been a disastrous president, but not just because of his tweets and his refusal to accept the election and all these other things, but because his policies were wrong. Now, that's where we are. Republicans and Democrats don't agree on a lot, but but this was more than the normal. And he undid all these things. 
He has yet to tell the American people why of all the Trump policies, this is the one he decided to keep and never revisit, never adjust, never even think about again. And why the, a bipartisan recommendation to keep between, I don't know, 35 and 4,500 troops in country. We had 2,500 a month ago. Why, why Joe Biden decided not to do that and instead align himself with Trump's policy. He's, not, he's never even explained that. So we should start with that. But, but to be fair, I mean, he ran on this policy. He was known when he was vice president to be against uh, the Afghan engagement. He's always been for withdrawing troops from Afghanistan. No, yeah. You know what? I don't know. I don't. I don't. That's what he says. That's not quite right. When he was in, you know, this thing, this war's going on so long, Andy, that Biden was still in the Senate. He, he said the other day in his speech to the American people that this was never about nation building. It was about nation building. And Joe Biden was the most forceful voice, along with Lindsey Graham, in the Senate in favor of nation building. So no, Biden's changed. You're right that he ran a campaign, said we ought to get out. But, but, what, but it turns out what getting out means is what this is all about. If these polls that AB was talking about that are changing, of course they're changing, right? Because- uh, you, the polls never asked. They said, "You know, should we get out of Afghanistan?" You know, okay. Most America, some Americans didn't even know we were still there, and twenty five hundred people there—that's no longer a nation-building force. That's a force to sort of keep the status quo. If you had asked people a poll, and I, I'm writing a story about this um, that we can talk about next week. So how about you ask a poll saying uh, the United States has twenty five hundred uh, personnel uh, in Afghanistan? Most of them are Air Force. Uh, flight crews and special forces and intelligence uh, units. If we pull all of those people out um, and the Taliban take them to the country and 20 million Afghan women can never vote or go to school um, or leave the house without a man and Al-Qaeda takes a foothold in the country and our, the people who helped us are lined up and shot. Oh, and by the way, um, we've given, they got 4,000 armored cars. I, that, that's, and, that's, called, that's called a push pull. Just you know, for the well, you know, you know, not really, because <laughs> because I'm exaggerating, but I'm exaggerating for effect. If you explain to people what the ramifications were, any way you want to phrase it, Andy, and said, do you favor that? You would have gotten a very different result. And and my point isn't my point is, is that the White House should know this. The, the Democrats have cited these polls as an excuse for what happened. But. But that, that's what governing is. Go governing is you're supposed to anticipate what might go wrong and make some decisions based on that. And, 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 the, and the polls, yeah, okay, a push poll, whatever you want to call it, a poll that really delved into the possibilities would have shown, I think, different results all along. Tom, what do well, you think? A couple things. I mean, again, this is where Biden has a problem because he's, he's out there saying publicly they planned for every contingency. They they you know, really work this problem. And yet they can't explain why they're now in the position that they're in. Uh, so that's one thing. The other thing is, too, the policy is not the issue. And I know Biden, when he gave his speech, he was he defended wait, his wait, decision. It is, it is to me, Tom. Let's, uh, well, that's fine. You can. Uh, but but <laughs> it's a broadly popular getting out of Afghanistan, ending it, uh, the forever war or the 20 year war, whatever you want to call it is a broadly popular position among the American people. It was until last week, Tom. It's it's one of the things that Donald Trump ran on and you know in which flew in the face of sort of republican orthodoxy 
And he found a very receptive audience among Republicans for that policy. It was also widely supported by Democrats. And so it's it's not the policy per se, it's the execution, right? And this is where Biden has fallen down and is having trouble getting back up because they are now stuck. Um, to AB's point, they can't really tell the truth about because, I mean, it's just the way that they executed this policy by evacuating Bagram Air Base and just leaving it with all of the, you know, all of the supplies and materials, right? Um, and not for some reason, not pre-planning to get all these, uh, you know, Afghans and Americans out of the country. Um, it's it's mind-boggling that that they approached it in such a sort of, you know, haphazard, slapdash way. And and we're now seeing the the images that we're seeing of of all these folks that are struggling to get you know, through the Taliban to the airport to, to find their way to freedom. I mean, it is, it is, it's a real failure uh, on the part of the administration from an executional standpoint of what is, or what was at the point, uh, a pretty broadly popular policy. You know, Ann Applebaum had a piece in the Atlantic this week, and, you know, she makes sort of a case for what some people call neocon foreign policy. Some people call liberal internationalism, I guess. But the idea is that we may not be interested in the world, but the world is interested in us. And I'm wondering, A.B., will one of the lessons of this be, if this turns out as bad as it, it, it looks, that there'll be a rethinking of our foreign policy? I mean, Tom makes the point that this was a popular policy that was botched in execution. I think Anne would say, whether it was a popular policy or not, the withdrawal was wrong because we should be there. We should be staying there, at least with a minimal force, because that's the only way to keep bad things from happening in these regions that don't seem to matter until they matter a whole lot. Until it's too late. That's my personal view. I mean, I think that once you leave and you no longer have a foothold, you invite you know, irreparable harm. But leaving that out of it, essentially, we have an American, you know, public that is is not is really no longer interested in in that argument that we we are the hope of the earth, and while we don't have to run the world, we have to we have to protect our own interests by seeing where around the globe we need to lead and we need to protect ourselves by helping allies. And that argument has really lost favor with the American public in the last 10, 15 years through these wars. And so it's really hard to keep people's um, in interest in this investment. And Trump and Tom's right. Trump really had an audience for that uh, in the Republican Party, which the Republican establishment did not expect and was surprised by. And so. Um, he really turned all of that orthodoxy on its ear. And so you have this coalition of Republicans who are nationalists and say, let the world take care of their own problems, keep them away from us. Don't take in these refugees. We're a broke country ourselves. We have to take care of ourselves. And then you have Democrats who say, no more war. Same thing. I want you to spend the money on education and you know, um, safety net programs. And so it's really, um, that's the, that's the it's now, that's now critical mass. That's now the majority of the country. And so people like me who, you know, see a long view and look back 75 years and think there has to be a structure in place where we both 
where we're in these alliances because we're actually taking care of our own interests and it's worth the blood and treasure and the investment and the resources. And, and, and in the end, it helps not only the U.S., but, but really helps keep the world order in place, keep more peace and more security um, globally than if we withdraw. I want to add to that, Andy, one line, and it's from H.R. McMaster, because I, I agree with A.B. Uh, he said a lot of things. He's been all over the airwaves, former national security advisor and uh, war hero, um, graduate of West Point, Ph.D. in history. Uh, he said, look, the last three presidents thought this wasn't worth it. But now the American people can see it was worth it. Very succinct. And and I guess what I'm saying is that, you know, if you're governed by polls, you're going to make mistakes. The American people, when a pollster calls them, they don't have a PhD in history. They're not sitting back and thinking all the wrong things that can happen in Afghanistan. They're thinking, yeah, 20 years is enough. Yeah, bring our bring our troops home. It's an instinct and it's a an honest one. And it's a it's one we all have. But presidents and national security advisors and CIA directors and State Department heads are supposed to, they're supposed to go beyond that. They're supposed to play chess, not checkers. And they're supposed to anticipate what will happen if the United States does something easy and popular. Look, the counter to that argument is we spent 20 years, trillions of dollars, blood and treasure, and, you know, to try and stand up a government and a military to embed these democratic institutions. And it was a house of cards. It fell down. So it, we could stay there another 20 years. Well, another, are you suggesting, Carl, we stay there another 50 years, 100 years, 200 years? Uh, well, oh, yeah, yeah. Actually, yeah? that's exactly what okay. I'm suggesting. Tom, and I know Joe wait, Biden. Wait, listen, Tom, listen, wait, hold Tom, on. Wait, Tom. I, I'm not done with now. my point. Hold All right. On. But you asked me a question. Let me give it. They're not a prosecutor here. Let me just <laughs> let me give you a little more of an answer to that. Okay. We, we've had troops in Korea all your life, Tom. I know this because you're a little younger than me. We've had troops in Korea all my life. We've had troops in Germany. I know you covered Korea. We've had troops in, <laughs> in Germany. We have 50,000. We have troops in Japan. We have troops all over the place. If you, you know, you know David Petraeus, who, who doesn't take the loss of American service personnel lightly, he pointed, we've had, you know, one fatality there in the last, what, I don't know, 12 months um, for, you know, yeah, 2,500 people and taking no casualties to keep from what's happening there. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. And if it takes another 20 years, maybe it takes another 20 years. I don't know why everybody expects uh, the Afghani people in 20 years to, you know, to be, you know, to do what it took America, you know, 100 years to do. I, I, I just don't, that's a level of a lack of, I'm filibustering now. All right, Tom, go ahead. I, re, I, I, I see the mic look, back I, to you. <laughs> I know that Joe Biden took some some heat and some criticism. AB mentioned his sort of lack of empathy uh, on this issue, and he, he took some heat for saying in this interview, I think it was Stepanopoulos, or it might, it might have been another one, about saying, look, if the standard is we need to protect human rights and there are plenty of places, you know, should we go to war with China over the Uyghurs? Should we go into all these other countries where women are being subjugated by Sharia law or whatever the case may be? While it sounds not empathetic in the moment, um, that's a reasonable. I mean, is that what you're suggesting also? Well, that we need well, to go. This is the. This is the. It was in vogue with with Samantha Power when she was, you know, the R two P responsibility to protect. Right, we have an obligation as the United States. We need to be in Africa because of the the genocide that was occurring there. We need to be all 
places, right, in order to protect those people who are being persecuted. And that is just not a sustainable foreign policy. And I think to AB's point, it's been in some ways discredited over the past 20 years. And the American people are are done with it. Now that, I mean, you may think that's short-sighted, Carl, but the other side of that argument is where does it end? How does it stop? How much money, how much time, how much treasure do we spend in all of these different hotspots around the globe to try and protect people? And the idea is somehow that that is protecting our interests. And a lot of people don't agree with that. I I know a lot of people don't agree with it and I want to move on. So I will have the last word on this one, which is that, (laughs) you know, that's, you know, Tom, it's a reductionist argument. You cannot say that because we shouldn't be in one place. We shouldn't be in every place. To Carl's point, the art of leadership is is picking and choosing your battles and, and picking and choosing what's important. You know, we were in Afghanistan. We had a 20-year commitment there. We had 2,500 troops on the ground. It was not Denmark, that's for sure. It wasn't likely to become Denmark anytime soon, but certainly life there had improved for a lot of Afghans. And we cut and run in a way that left the country worse off than maybe if we hadn't been there at all. So that's the problem. The second thing is the question of when does it end? It never ends. That's the nature of great power politics. It never ends. And if you withdraw, if you say, we're going to stop playing this game, the other people in the game don't stop playing the game. China and Russia and whoever else you want to talk to, the terrorists will continue and they will come okay. after us in a way that we've seen before. So, so you're saying we should still be in Iraq. We should still be in Afghanistan. We should still we should have troops in Syria, right? We should be mired in the Middle East, as John McCain said, for a hundred years. I thought well, Andy was going to have the last word. Tom. <laughs> no, but no. that's what he's saying. It yes. never ends. Yeah. It never stops. So we I should not that, have pulled out of Iraq. I am saying there is a level of commitment that the U.S. should be able to make in these places that would maintain at least the status quo. That is policy enough that the idea that that because these places aren't all of a sudden becoming Kansas means that we failed. That is just a sort of rhetorical sleight of hand that I think goes too far. A.B., you are nodding. Uh, I'd want to <laughs> yeah, three on one here. It's three on one. And then we're going to talk about vaccines for a second. I, I look there. There was. You know, people like Marco Rubio, you know, used to agree with Andy and myself that you you leave a void, that void will be filled. And if you want to, I mean, ultimately, it will affect our own national security if we let the Russians and the Chinese fill these voids and that and the Iranians and whoever. And that's just the truth. You have to play you. You have to play chess. And so Tom's arguments are very compelling. I mean, I have feelings on both sides of this issue. Ultimately, I think we need to leave a residual force, but we could sit here till we drew our last breath, just, you know, making good points on both sides. It's the politics of it that is is not budging. I mean, truly, you cannot compel enough interest from the American public to make these investments anymore. And, you know, to Carl's point, which is interesting, is does a president of the United States of America, the leader of the free world, give the voters what they need or he thinks they need, or does he, you know, lead by polls like Carl said and, and give them what they want? Um, that That's, you know, increasingly everybody just governs by polls and whatever the leaders think that the voters want, they lean into that. So it's, it's, 
on Afghanistan or any of our other, you know, future crises like this, I, I don't think you're going to have the will of the people behind whoever is in charge. Well, Tom, as a, and as I just a have the last word. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to give you the first word on vaccines, but here I'll yes. take the last word on this, and you can give Carl the first word on vaccines. <laughs> okay. He feels much more strongly about it than I do. Look, I, I think part of this is whether or not you believe that the United States armed forces should be, their job should be winning wars or building nations, right? We have come to the view that that suddenly this, why are you shaking your head like that, Andy? Be, because that's, that's, I know this is a, a podcast, false, but that, that's they can't even watch, they can't even see it's it, not, guys. I mean, what, what a polar opposite. I mean, I mean, is it to fight wars? Of course it's to fight wars. Is it to, what was the other way you put it? To, to build nations? No, it's to stave off bad things from happening in these regions where horrible things can happen that will eventually come home to roost in the United States. Now, Tom, I'm giving you the last word, so please wrap up quickly because I want to move on. <laughs> we could just go to vaccines. Look, I, I, I do think the nation building exercises that we have been on have over the last 20 years, which have not gone well, have undermined the credibility of those arguments. And it's just a, how the American people, you can say they're not interested in this. I think that perhaps is not giving them enough credit. I think they have been supportive over time, but, but as they've seen the results, the fruits of the, the labor and the treasure that we spent overseas, um, they've become less inclined to be supportive of pursuing those same policies. All right. Well, we're going to move on. And, and I should apologize uh, to the audience, at least. I, I have be gone from what's called the moderator to the immoderator. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's what we used to. I used to work with Ben Wattenberg, who we never called the moderator because he always had an opinion. We had him. We called him the immoderator. And I think I've... <laughs> traversed into that uh, region. But uh, Carl, let's talk about these vaccine mandates. We've got them at the federal level. You've got the HHS announced this week. They will require it for their workers. The DOD wants it. I think they're still waiting for the White House to decide. We've got a lot of companies, Disney, Google, Facebook, Netflix, Walmart, uh, 21 states and the District of Columbia now have some form of COVID-19 vaccine mandate. They're all pretty much blue states. Um, Charlie Baker up in Massachusetts, a Republican governor in a blue state, has one of the most uh, restrictive uh, as of this week. Is this really the uh, nose of the camel under the tent towards Big Brother, or is it just good old public policy? Well, the, the nose under the tent of Big Brother uh, was called a smartphone. And that happened a long time ago. Um, look, Andy, you know, this is an issue where people have their ideology and then they look around them um, at what's happening in the country and their ideology kind of fades away. It's the idea of vaccine, vaccination mandates and government and following you around, you know, literally on your phone um, when you get your vaccination in Virginia, hey, do you want to do this? The CDC wants to follow you around. It's for contact tracing. Don't worry. That's all it's for. That should make any person who cares about civil liberties uncomfortable. On the other hand, you watch the nightly news programs and, and one just shudders. You know, this woman in Texas, she refused to get vaccinated. Uh, her husband refused to get vaccinated. He died four days before she did. They have four children. They got the. They apparently got the coronavirus Delta variant uh, at a Christian summer camp. 
the husband didn't even go to it. They came home. Uh, the kids got it. Everybody in the family got it. He died. Then she died. Her last, literally her dying wish is vaccinate my children. And so you see these and you're thinking the government is asking people to do something that they shouldn't even have to ask, let alone force them. They People should be lining up to get these shots. And the idea that the vaccine now we think wears off, starts wearing off after eight to 10 months, the science of all this is still being discovered. We may need a booster. You know, people now are saying, oh, see, the thing doesn't even work. I mean, I just don't know when Americans became so <laughs> unscientific and so uh, willful. I don't like masks. I don't like vaccine. I don't even like it. Who likes getting a shot in the arm with a needle? I don't like the government telling me what to do, but I did all these things, Andy. And, you know, i if I had to classify myself, I'd be closer to libertarian than Democrat or Republican. I did all these things. I couldn't wait to get my shot. I don't understand why people aren't doing it. And I think, you know, if the government's trying to save people's lives and, and not just that, try to keep the economy open again. I mean, we don't want another major lockdown like we had last year. We don't want that. We can't handle it. And I think that the people who are protesting uh, these these mandates ought to stop and think what they're really against and what they're really for. AB, what do you think? It's been really interesting to watch the politics of this. The administration was trying to stay out of the vaccine mandate debate for so long, and now they're you know we're looking at hospitals at capacity and devastating infection and death rates across states in the South. I'm so concerned about the people who don't have COVID who um, can't get into a hospital for their necessary treatment if they have a stroke or they're having a spike from their chemotherapy as their cancer patients. I mean, this is horrific and it's avoidable and it's preventable. And Carl just told you that devastating story about that family. The doctors come on TV begging people to get the vaccine and tell us that every single solitary COVID patient that has died in their care who was unvaccinated has said they regret it. Every single one. Not one of them goes to their death saying, well, now that I've relied on all of this care from you guys in this hospital with all these machines and all this science for the last week, and I'm about to meet my maker, I'm still glad I didn't get the vaccine. So this is madness. Um, I agree with Carl. I do think a lot of it is that they are misinformed on social media. Um, to the point where they don't even believe what their doctor's saying. I mean, they start hoovering the pollution first to the point where then it turns them against their own physicians because, you know, they're really dug in. And they are the reason that we're going to go from the Delta variant to something far more severe that our, we are not protected against from our current Pfizer and Moderna shots. And that terrifies me. Um, but the administration, has, at this point, they realize COVID is back in control. Biden came in knowing that it was the most important thing and that everything else was secondary. He got it under control. At least he distributed the vaccines effectively. He performed. Now it's escalating out of control and there's a whole pall on the country. And that compounds this whole Afghanistan thing, right? That we're back in crisis, that, that we're, it's out of control. And so at this point, if he, he's right to lean into all this stuff and use the government levers of power that he can to try to force nursing home staff, et cetera, because there's, there's no way around this. If he doesn't contain it and contain the spread, it affects him anyway. 
you know, it affects the Democrats next year. Why not just try to save lives, scold Governor Abbott, scold Governor DeSantis and do what you can to to point out to people that the unvaccinated are hindering the economy, the return to school, you know, the capacity at hospitals, all these things. I think they they had no choice. Um, and I, I think it's an absolutely enraging uh, that people, like I said, who are going about their business, they're, you know, they got vaccines like their kids do for all these other diseases to go to school. And now they might be a stage four cancer patient and their life uh, is in jeopardy because they live in a state where they can't get care. It, it's, it's just, it, this is completely beyond belief. Well, Tom, you know, uh, vaccine rates are back up. I think they're up to over a million a day again. So people are getting the vaccine. I think the real question is this idea of a mandate. Should the government force you? And then how do they enforce it? And I'll just tell you, in New York, where you're supposed to go into a restaurant, uh, you're supposed to somehow prove you're vaccinated. It's the minimum wage employee at the front there who's the hostess who is supposed to check your vaccine records. Is this any way to, to sort of to run this kind of a thing? And is there another option? No, the short answer is no. It's, in my opinion, not the way to run the thing. And I, I am, to Carl's point, very conscious of the civil liberties aspect of this and wanting to not impinge on our freedoms as much as humanly possible to get through this. Um, I don't want to be in a situation where we have to be, everybody has to be showing their papers wherever they go, restrictions on travel, crossing straight state lines. I mean, you can just see how this thing could really very quickly spiral into a situation where we've we've managed to give away a ton of our freedoms that we wouldn't otherwise have, have ever done. And so I don't want to see it get to that. Is Delta real? Is it happening? Absolutely. I mean, AB, you use some pretty strong language in terms of I don't I forget what the adjectives were surging cases and rampant, you know, death across the southeastern U.S. I mean, I, that seems a bit strong, in my opinion. Well, Tom, there's not one ICU bed available in the state of Alabama. Oh, there are not, several not, southern not, states who said not, that they had that is, it was never this bad last year, that they and, are at their worst. Well, and I, yeah. And Tom, if not one ICU bed in Alabama because of covid to A.V.'s point, then other people who've been vaccinated mm-hmm. And who've been fighting, they can't get ICU treatment. That that point that she made, I think, is an under. I think it's a it's an important one, and I hadn't thought about it enough. There's all these other people who have other diseases. You know, those hospitals are there for a reason. They're not just to take care of people who refuse to get a vaccine to a preventable disease. And so, hundred percent. That's that. That's what this. That's what this story said. Ninety two percent Mississippi. I'm still not crazy about the way uh, the media has covered this from the beginning. I think there has been, and I think it's caused us to do things that we wouldn't otherwise have done. And, and so I think there's a bit of that going on with the, the coverage of, of Delta that I think is a repeat of, of what we went through the first time around. Um, but that being, that being said, I mean, yes, I'm concerned that we're, we're moving in a place where um, I don't want to see us go there and, and certain, Governors, the administration perhaps are hesitant about doing it, but seem to be, you know, more open to it uh, now than they were in the past. And that obviously concerns me. Well, you know what? I'm going to let Tom have the last word. Because <laughs> we talking about Iraq to- again? Can we talk? No. 
uh, I just want Tom to come back. I feel like maybe he feels like we were beating up on him today. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, anyway, I want to thank you all. I want to thank Carl Cannon, A.B. Stoddard, Tom Bevan. Uh, we're usually here Tuesdays and Thursdays and Fridays in some form or fashion. So bookmark this podcast. Check back often. As always, I encourage you to go to Real Clear Politics. Read one article from a writer or publication with whom you disagree. It could be any one of our panelists today, I think. Uh, and if you haven't already, you should subscribe to Carl Cannon's Morning Note. It's a free newsletter. comes in your email every morning. I can't start my day without it. You shouldn't either. So you can sign up for it on realclearpolitics.com. And thank you for listening. Until next time, for Real Clear Politics. I'm Andrew Walworth.